0: Thank you for listening. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit the Hay Player at hayfestival.org.
1: and welcome to Hay Festival 2019. It's lovely to see you all here. Uh, This event comes as part of our association with the University of Cambridge, which gives us access to wonderful academics who can tell you about the work they're doing. So, without more ado, please give a very warm welcome to Dr Catherine Aitken, who's going to talk about Your Granny's Bump. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. I'm here today, part of the University of Cambridge series, to introduce you to a relatively new idea, a new field in biological science. Now, the ideas that underpin all of this they have been around for about 30 years, which is a blink of an eye in the terms of what a scientific field is. And it's the story of how the very earliest days of our lives growing inside the womb might affect our health lifelong, and maybe not just our own health, but maybe health across generations as well. The ideas are called the developmental origins of health or disease, and they're normally known just as developmental programming. And in the story of developmental programming today, we're going to go across the globe. I'm going to take you from Kenya to Canada. I'm going to try to convince you that you're more like a tree rat than you might ever have imagined. And we're going to revisit one of history's most famous scientific feuds. We're going to look at how a remote corner of Sweden might hold the clue to health across our generations. And I'm going to try to tell you that food that was eaten 60 years before you were even born might still influence your health today. How could that possibly be? The story of developmental programming. But our story begins somewhere you might not expect. It doesn't begin in my lab in Cambridge, doesn't begin in an antenatal clinic. It actually begins in Holland. It begins in Holland in the autumn of 1944. Now, in the autumn of 1944, Holland had been under occupation by Nazi Germany for four years. There'd been desperate hardships for the Dutch population. But over that summer, things had looked up. The Allied forces had swept across from the south of the country, and they'd liberated Holland as far as the Rhine. But at the Battle of Arnhem, their advance came to a crashing halt, and everything hung in the balance. Not just the future of Holland, but the outcome of the Second World War, and the future of Western Europe. In exile in London, the Dutch government knew that they had to try something different, and they decided to try to put a blockade in place of the supply lines to the invaders. But that backfired spectacularly, and in retaliation, Nazi Germany shut down transport all across Holland. For the population still under occupation in the north and the west, this was an enormous disaster. Now, up until this time, despite the fact that things had been in many ways disastrously hard, they'd had enough to eat. They'd had a regular diet of maybe 2,000 calories a day each. But by November of 1944, food supplies had plummeted. Food supplies had plummeted to half the normal amount that a, an adult would eat. And by the springtime of 1945, calorie rations had gone down to fewer than 500 calories per person for a day. And by the time liberation happened in May of 1945, the Dutch population had endured a severe famine for several months.
0: The starved, rickets ridden bodies of this Dutch family are witnesses to the treatment the Germans meted out to our friends in Holland. Living testimony to the state of health of thousands of Dutch children. Now under allied supervision, food distribution centres begin the difficult task of leading Holland's young generation back to health.
1: Over 22,000 people died in what's become known in Dutch simply as the Hunger Winter. But with the return of the food supplies in May of 1945, the effects of the famine weren't over. And that wasn't something that people realized immediately, but it was something that only became apparent in the population decades later. In the late 1970s and the early 1980s, epidemiology came back into fashion. Epidemiology is the science of how diseases happen and trends across populations. And it's not often a fashionable thing. You might not think of science as something that has fashions and vogues, but it definitely does. There are times when we radiocarbon date everything, and other times when we sequence everyone's genome and so on. But epidemiology is not often a fashionable thing to do. But there was a resurgence of interest in it in the late 1970s. And when that happened, in Dutch universities, researchers noticed something incredibly interesting. They could see a blip, and they could see a blip in obesity statistics. And when they traced that back and dug down into what this was, what they found was that men who'd been in the womb during the hunger winter, during the Dutch famine, had twice the rates of obesity of men who'd been born just a few months earlier or a few months later. And there was something about those men who'd been in the womb, whose mothers had experienced this famine during their pregnancy, that you could still see in their health, years and years down the line. And when they dug into that a bit more, when they actually find some of these men and looked at their health status, they also found that they had higher blood pressure and that they were more likely to get diabetes and that they could see other health effects as well. They could see even mental health problems like schizophrenia were at higher rates in these men whose mothers had experienced the famine in the womb. And this is a new way of thinking about high health and disease risk might be conferred. And in fact, maybe it takes us back to one of the biggest questions in science of all time, this idea of nature (laughs) versus nurture. Now, this wasn't simply nature. This isn't just a genetic thing. And you can show that because they could find the siblings of those men who'd been in the womb during the famine, other children who shared those genetics. And they had normal rates of obesity. It wasn't their genes that were causing this. But it wasn't simply nurture, either. These men themselves had never experienced a famine. By the time they'd been born in May of 1945, they had normal food supplies. And later in life, they they did just as well, economically, socially, financially, as children born a few months earlier, a few months later. But they did have this health imprint that had stayed with them. And scientists didn't know how that could happen. It was something that fell in between our traditional ideas of nature and nurture. And that's the kind of problem that scientists love. That's the kind of thing that sets off, sparks off a new field of investigation when we see a problem like this. But, of course, there are difficulties, as there are with observing any population. You can't always get to exactly what you want on a population, and particularly if you're looking at a wartime population, it's nobody's priority to keep detailed birth records during a war when you're under occupation by Nazi Germany. And populations that have experienced that kind of trauma, that kind of problem, they tend to be more migrant than other populations. They tend to scatter more. Um, And it's very hard to follow up those people in large numbers and to find out what really happened to them later in life. And the other difficulty that we have with the hunger winter population is that we only really know what became of the boys that were in the womb during that time. And the reason for that is that scientists used a lot of army data. And National Service was in force across Holland at that time. And they tended to get the health data, the heights and the weights and so on, from the army data. Now, the girls who'd been in the womb during that time, they hadn't got army data from later in life, and so it was much harder, again, to find out what had happened to the girls who were in the womb. We really only knew what had happened to the boys. And what was needed was a more modern population that you could study these same effects in. And to see even if this was a real thing, because sometimes epidemiology, sometimes data, they, they throw up things that are not really true. And so scientists were on the lookout for a new natural experiment. You might say, OK, you know, fine, wars, famines, they happen all the time. There must be lots of populations that you can look at this kind of thing in. But what was needed was a particular type of stress. It had to affect a lot of people. It had to come on at a defined time, and it had to stop again. And The trouble with most wars and famines and so on is that they don't stop again at a defined time. They carry on and they rumble on for years and years, and then you don't have a good comparison group. And so it's a lot more difficult than you'd think to spot the opportunity that you need to look at this kind of effect. Now, in 1988, 1988, Canadian scientists thought that they'd find just what they were looking for. In January of 1988, an ice storm swept across central Canada. Now, an ice storm in the middle of a Canadian winter is not necessarily an unusual thing, but this ice storm, this was off the scale.
0: It looked like a, uh, a war zone, really. It was so devastated. Easy. Trees were falling on the lines, and the lines were falling down on their own because of the weight of the ice that was building up on there.
1: Then we lost power for more than half of the province.
0: When you saw electrical pylon suddenly uh, buckle in front of your, of, of your eyes, you knew
2: right away this was going to be a major, major problem.
1: And it was a major, major problem. Twenty-five people across Quebec died from hypothermia during the ice storm. And thousands in the province lost their homes and their incomes, and millions were left without electricity for 40 days in the middle of a Canadian winter. And down the road in Montreal, in McGill University, as soon as their own power had back, come back on, researchers thought this could be part of the opportunity they'd been looking for. And they started getting in touch with the woman who'd been pregnant during the ice storm. And those women became part of Project Ice Storm. And because they were following them up in real time, they could find out individually from each woman how she had been affected by the storm, and they could separate out those who'd had cold, who had stress, who would had hunger, from those who would had psychological problems, like, like losing their home or perhaps even losing a loved one. And when their children were born, those children became the Project Ice Storm kids. They're 31 this year, and those children have made an amazing contribution to science. They've allowed themselves to be weighed, to be measured, to have their health status followed up as they've been growing. And in real time, we've been able to look at how they compare to children whose mothers didn't experience the ice storm during pregnancy. By the time they were five, you could see from the Project Ice Storm kids that they were slower to acquire language than children who'd been born in other parts of Canada at the same time, and that their motor development was slightly behind as well. But by the time they hit adolescence, the Project Ice Storm kids began to give really interesting results. And what you could see was that they also had higher BMIs than children who hadn't experienced the ice storm in the womb. And this was the key piece of evidence that recapitulated what you saw in the men who'd been in the womb during the Dutch Hunger Winter that really told us that here was an effect that was affecting entirely different human populations in different parts of the globe with no relationship to one another, but that you could see exactly the same thing happening again. Because we're following up the Project Ice Storm Kids in real time, scientists were able to make even more um, careful measurements of what's happening, and they could detect more subtle effects. For example, girls who'd been in the womb during the ice storm had higher rates of eating disorders in adolescence and higher rates of asthma. And from those, we began to get the first inklings of really how you could get into the nuts and bolts of what was happening to these children in the womb that was affecting them lifelong. But as scientists, if you really want to understand an effect and if you want to delve down into what's going on here, what, what is this, then you have to be able to recreate the conditions in the laboratory. And humans, oh, they're just a terrible species to work with, as a scientist. <laughs> it takes too long. Their pregnancies last for months, and then their kids take decades to grow up, and then they keep on changing all kinds of really important things that, that you need to keep constant for a good experiment, like what they eat and where they live and how much exercise they do. Uh, terrible. So we had to go back to our old friends, the lab rats, and we had to see if we could recreate these human populations in the laboratory. And it turns out that you absolutely can. And you absolutely can get the same effects as you see in a human population when you do those tests in the lab. And because you're doing it in the lab, you can go on to explore all kinds of other bits and pieces that you can't explore in a human population. We could show that their kidneys aged faster, that their livers were less efficient, that their hearts and their lungs and their blood vessels, they were all less flexible and less adaptable to doing exercise or to getting older. And we could even see changes in the brain that seemed to foreshadow some of the mental health effects that we could see in both the Dutch Hunger Winter and in the Project Ice Storm Kids. And to me as a as a young scientist this was this was really exciting. So a decade ago I was deciding what I was going to do, what where I was gonna go with with my research and, and how this was gonna play out. And I knew that it had to be to do with pregnancy and childbirth, and I'd known that since I was first a medical student and The very first baby I ever delivered, the midwife had to kind of nudge me to hand it back to the mother, because (laughs) I was so excited by this new life that had arrived in my hands, and, yeah, I was totally sold that that's what I was going to do. But for a research question, what is your question going to be? That's a big question for a young scientist starting out. And I was at the University of Cambridge, and I was lucky to be in a lab where the very first human embryos that made IVF possible were being grown in dishes and and being able to be in those places and and work with people who had seen human beings for the very first time in the history of the species at that stage of development, and and having them wandering around the lab and looking at what I was doing, going, "Oh, nice embryos, and that encouragement meant that I I knew that I had to work on something that was to do with how we would then go on to protect the long-term health of embryos that had had a difficult start, of children who'd not experienced ideal conditions in the womb. But two things bothered me, and, you know, as a scientist, if you're going to spend your life working on something and you're going to think about it all the time, at the weekends, on holiday, all the time, you have to be really convinced that this is a question that you want to follow. And two things nagged at me. One was that I didn't want to work on something that wasn't relevant to very many people. I wanted to work on something that affected huge numbers of people. And thankfully, the vast majority of children and populations, they don't grow up during a war or a famine or anything like that. And so the important thing to me was to know, does this also happen in other conditions that are are less severe but, but more common? Um, For example, in 2019, almost half the women who start off at pregnancy are overweight and and one in five is obese. More than one in ten smokes during pregnancy. And all across the globe, women are pregnant at very high altitudes where oxygen levels are are less than, than they should be. And could it be that all of these other conditions that are much less severe than a war or a famine, could they still affect health lifelong? Turns out that, yeah, they do. And we can make models of those as well. And we can show that whenever you get those much, much more common but less severe problems, then you can still see those same problems affecting the health of the offspring later in life. And the other thing is that the conditions we're talking about, the conditions that seem to be developmentally programmed, the heart disease and the diabetes, they're big things that that kill a lot of people prematurely. They're really important diseases for populations. They're the kind of thing that an awful lot of people will go on to experience. And they're the kind of thing that makes a big difference. If you could get a new insight into how those things start off in the womb and how they're programmed and how they begin, then maybe you have a new way to tackle something that really is a big problem for a lot of people. And so, I was OK, one, one of my objections was, was well laid. I, I was all right with, with the idea that this was going to be an important thing to study. But the second thing that, that bothered me about making developmental programming my whole research trajectory was, well, why should it be? Why would it be a good thing? Why would it be a helpful thing? Now, normally, if something's not helpful to populations, it just gets selected out. We don't go on doing things that are, that are unhelpful to us. Um, and it, from what I've described, it sounds really unhelpful. You know, a population undergoes a famine, and then that famine's over, and you would want to move on from that as quickly as you can. You would want to, to forget that there'd ever been a famine and get back to normal health as fast as you could. Why would it ever be an advantage to still see the effects of that famine 50 years later? And I thought, eh, that doesn't really make any sense, I'm, I'm not quite sold here. But perhaps it begins to make more sense when you stop thinking about humans and human populations and instead think about this guy. This is an acacia rat. This particular acacia rat lives outside a safari lodge in Kenya. My husband photographed him on holiday last year. And perhaps the whole thing makes a lot more sense if you look at it from the perspective of an acacia rat than it does from a human. This acacia rat is very bad at changing its environment to suit itself. It's very dependent on what its forest is like, how much food there is, what the temperature is like, and so on. I'm a really good environmental modifier. If I don't like my environment, there are a lot of things that I can do about it. I can travel almost all the way across the world, barely setting foot outside, barely changing temperature at all. If there's a famine when I go home to my kitchen tonight, then I'll go down to Waitrose and I'll sort that out. I'm able to change a lot of stuff about what I see in the environment. This acacia rat is very, very bad at changing its environment to suit itself. So maybe if you have a problem, and you think that your kid is also going to face this problem, and you can't fix the problem, then maybe the answer is to adapt the child to cope better with the environment. And you can test that, and you can see that that's exactly what happens. If you have an acacia rat who eats a low-calorie diet during its pregnancy, it doesn't have enough food, it's a a mother who's who's undergoing not a a proper famine, but low food supplies during pregnancy, then you can take the pups, and after they've weaned, you can separate them out into two groups. You can give one of them a completely regular diet, and the other one, you can give the same low-calorie diet that the mother had during her pregnancy. The pups that eat the regular diet they have the effects that you'd expect developmental programming would predict. They get fat, they have diabetes, they get heart disease. But the pups that stay on the same diet that the mother had during pregnancy, that keep on with a low-calorie diet, they do incredibly well. They actually live longer, they're healthier. They are absolutely perfectly adapted for a low-calorie diet. They use every scrap of energy that they can get hold of, and they stay lean, and they use that. and they are beautifully adapted to cope with that environment that mum showed them inside the womb. It's only when you get this mismatch, when the pups don't see what mum saw inside the womb, that this suddenly becomes an unhelpful thing, and their programming, their metabolism, it's all set wrong for the environment that they actually face. Now, if you're an acacia rat, that makes a lot of sense, because it's very likely that your pups will face the same environment that you faced when you were pregnant. Pregnancy here is only 18 days, and their pups are going to be reproducing within a matter of weeks. If you're a human, then that's a problem, first, because you can modify your environment, and secondly, because your children aren't going to be growing up for another 50 years, and they're very unlikely to actually face the same environment that you faced when you were pregnant. And so it may be that in human populations, this comes out as an unhelpful effect, because of the fact that we've evolved to have much longer generation times, and we've also become so good at changing things to suit ourselves, that you no longer really have to change the kid to face the environment. And that's all okay, so, so that kind of makes sense, because it would be a good thing in some mammals to have this idea of developmental programming, even if in humans it doesn't seem to be ideal in most populations. But how does it work? I've talked about this idea of programming. What is that programming? You know, on a a nuts and bolts level, how do you get to that? Well, one important thing to say is that baby doesn't see what mum sees. Baby doesn't see the environment. Baby's inside the womb, and baby's in a little bubble that that mums actually keeping constant for the baby. So if a pregnant woman travels, let's say, from Arizona to Aberdeen, her temperature is going to change, her temperature is going to fall by about 30 degrees. But her baby is going to stay constant, right at 37 degrees at body temperature. The mum is going to buffer all of that environmental change on behalf of the baby, so the baby can stay at this lovely incubator temperature that's perfect for its growth and development. And so we don't have to worry about small changes in the environment. They're not going to cause these long-term health effects. Mum's going to take care of those with her own physiology before baby sees any of it. But there is a way that baby can see what mum's seeing. And that's because mum's blood supply is plugged into baby's support organ, the placenta. And baby's plugged into the other side of the placenta. And so there is one single information pipeline where mum can signal about important things, big things in the environment, directly to the baby. They've got between them that one controlled information pipeline. But it's not like baby is reacting to every single thing that's happening in the environment, only those few things that mum shows it through this clear pipeline. But what happens? What is it that that information pipeline might actually be showing baby? And how would it change anything in the baby that could then be seen still as an effect in that same baby decades down the line. Well, I like to think of a baby as like an office block. Maybe not just a single office block. Maybe, let's say, baby is like a whole downtown of office blocks. And if we think here about the lighting pattern, what you observe here as this pattern of lights, there's several things that control this. One is the hard wiring of these buildings, where the lights are positioned. OK, so far so good. The second thing is whether the light switches are all flicked on or off. And then the third thing, there might be dimmer switches in all of these lights. And if you think about those three things, those are the three things that are going to determine how you, sitting here, see this pattern of lights. Baby's genes are exactly the same as this. So if you think of baby's DNA and its genetics as the hard wiring of these buildings, then that's set. That's set at the time that the buildings are built, and it's set at the moment that baby's conceived. And baby has the genes that it's going to have in all its cells lifelong. And if there's a problem with the wiring diagram at the start or a problem with baby's genes, then science and genetics simply doesn't have a way to recover that at the moment. That's, That's what it is, and that's set for your whole life. What changes is the light switch is being flicked on and off. And that changes the whole time, the whole... throughout the lifespan of this building. If you look at it in a moment in time, the lights are going to be flicked on and off in different ways. And that's the same as inside baby cells. The genes aren't all on all the time. Some genes are on at some times. A skin cell and a brain cell they're obviously really different, they're completely different things, and yet they have the same hard wiring inside both of them. The reason we see a skin cell as different to a brain cell and the reason that they do completely different jobs is the genes, the light switches that are flicked on and off in each of those cells, a different set of them for a brain cell than a skin cell, and a different set of them in an eight-year-old skin cell and a 60-year-old skin cell. They look, they look different, they are different, and they're different not because they have different hard wiring. they've got exactly the same hardwiring, but because of which of the lights or which of the genes is flicked on and off at any time. And which of the lights are on and off depends on what you do in your life, how much exercise you do, how much wine you drink at night, whether or not you go wet training, all kinds of things affect how those lights are flicked on and off in any of your genes at any one time. But that can't be the answer here, because if those can be flicked on and off constantly through life, then then clearly that can't be the thing that mum sets at the start, because they could be changed many, many times by the time a disease happens decades later. What might be important, though, is we think about that third level of control, the idea that there are also dimmer switches at play here. And maybe mum can set the dimmer switches early on, such that even if the lights get flicked on and off later through life, then that dimming effect still persists, and that she can show that baby how to express its genes, and whenever that gene is red, you could still see the effect of what mom, how mum changed those genes very, very early on. And there's a way to do exactly that in baby's DNA. This blue spiral here, this is the hard wiring of baby, this is its genome, this is its DNA. And what you can do is you can stick little tiny sticky molecules all over this DNA that effectively act as dimmer switches. And whenever part of that DNA is red, it's red with those dimmer switches attached to it. And if you set those dimmer switches early in life, then you've changed that DNA and how baby's genes are expressed. You haven't changed baby's genes, you can't change them. But you can change, as those genes are flicked on and off as baby grows and develops, you can change how its dimmer settings are attached. And you can do that the whole way through life, if you want to. But it's most effective to do it at these very early stages. It's most effective to do it when there are very few cells to change. And as baby's growing, this is a human embryo dividing in the first days of life, there are very few cells here. If you change the sticky molecules that are attached to the DNA in just one of these cells, by the time this baby's born, that's going to represent millions of cells. And so, this is a very powerful time to change those dimming settings because that effect is multiplied by the time the baby's even born and way multiplied beyond that by the time the baby's actually growing up. The other thing about these cells, these early embryo cells, is that this DNA is wiped clean. It hasn't already got any sticky marks on it, and so the ones that you put on at this stage, they're going to be profoundly important. They're not competing with anything else that the baby's already got. And so this is how the mum then sets the baby, programs the baby for life. I want just to take a minute to think back to our big debate, our nature and our nurture. And I want to talk about Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, this guy here. Now, he's someone that we remember as a kind of a scientific anti-hero. He's one of the few people that we teach in schools, in science class, for being wrong. There aren't many people whose reputation in science is as bad as poor old Jean-Baptiste Lamarck. But Jean-Baptiste Lamarck in his day was a very, very distinguished scientist. He was the professor of invertebrate biology at the Natural History Museum in Paris. He, In fact, he coined the term invertebrate. And he made all kinds of contributions to what we know about science. But he's remembered principally today for having said two things. The first thing that we remember him for saying is that how you use something alters how it develops. And his example for that was the blacksmith. The blacksmith spends all day at the anvil, hammering horseshoes, and gets big arm muscles. Yeah, well, I think we would accept that, but yeah, no problem. And if you weight train, then you get big arm muscles and so on, and we can change how our bodies appear by how we use them. So far, so good. Where Lamarck ran into trouble was with his second postulate. He also said that those changes would then be transmitted directly to the next generation. Now, I've delivered thousands of babies, but to my knowledge, I've never delivered the baby for blacksmith. But I don't believe that a blacksmith's baby is going to be born with big arm muscles because its father spent all its time hammering blacksmiths, hammering horseshoes. I just don't think that's plausible. And that's how history has tended to, to frame what Lamarck said. Um, clearly, not, not quite on the money. But maybe there is something. Maybe there is something in that idea that... It, the environment and what your parents see before you're born, maybe it does have an effect on the way the baby develops. Maybe he wasn't completely wrong about the fact that the environment before you're born, while you're still in the womb, might change some of the risks of the diseases and the problems that you get later in life. And he's always set up against Charles Darwin. He's always set up like the two of them had a Twitter feud or something. They completely didn't. Darwin did his work 50 years after Lamarck. And actually, Darwin was quite an admirer of Lamarck and his approach to science. He thought that Lamarck's way of rejecting what he called the magical interposition or the kind of woolly, unscientific thinking of a lot of scientists at the time, he was a big fan of Lamarck's work. He didn't necessarily agree with him. He thought that genetics were everything. But there was definitely not the kind of science feud that that we envisage with the two of them today. And poor old Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, he ended up dying a pauper in Paris in 1829. But maybe things didn't turn out so bad for him after all. He's got one of the most beautiful species of jellyfish in the sea named for him. And here we are, as scientists, nearly 200 years later, saying, Maybe he wasn't all that wrong, after all. Maybe, maybe there was something in those theories that he postulated, after all. So maybe we've cracked this. Maybe we've got to the bottom of this story, that mum experiences a famine when she's pregnant. She tries to adapt the baby to cope with famine and to deal better with that, but the baby doesn't experience a famine, and instead this results in the baby having a higher risk of common diseases. So far, so good. And that was great. That Whenever we first decided that, that there was good evidence that this is the case, scientists got really excited. And scientists are like toddlers. If you give them something that's really exciting, they'll grab it with both hands, and they'll play with it, and they'll figure it out, and then they'll break it. And that's exactly what happened with this theory. Scientists were playing around with this, and they decided, OK, let's breed through to another generation. And so our original mum who experienced the famine, she's now grandma, her daughter is mum, and we've got a new baby to think about. And the question was, would this new baby also show any of the effects of this original famine? Would it also have a higher risk of diabetes and heart disease and so on? And it turned out that actually, yes, it does. And that's strange, and that's a problem, because this mother, she didn't experience any famine during her pregnancy. When this baby was in the womb, everything was fine. And if this was simply a direct effect of that famine, then this baby should be fine. This baby shouldn't have any of those problems. And so there's something that we're not understanding here. There's something that that we haven't quite got right in this story. Why couldn't it just see directly the effects of that first famine? Well, because with each generation, the wiring diagram changes. All the dimmer switches go back to factory settings, and it can't simply be that that's then transmitted straight through to that next baby. And this is really puzzling. This is, this is a problem, because we have this effect that, that we don't understand and that, that we can't simply explain by this idea of the epigenetics, the, the dimmer switches changing um, and mum fixing things for the child. And so we're left again with those big questions of science. We're back to the really simple things, the how and the why. And the why, maybe, maybe we can explain the why. Maybe if we go back to our acacia rat, then we know why. Because if something bad happens to this acacia rat, let's say the forest burns down. If there's a big forest fire, and this acacia rat's generation time is only a few months, things aren't gonna be changed, things aren't gonna be fixed. The shade, the food, the shelter, it hasn't come back by the time this rat's children have grown up. And it probably hasn't even changed by the time its grandchildren have grown up. Six months to a year, that's, that's nothing in the generation time of a forest, but it's a long time in the life of an acacia rat. And so if, you want, if you're this rat and you want to get a real survival advantage at a time when things are very, very tough... It's no good to program just your children. You've got to program your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren as well if you want to get that survival advantage that's going to keep your genes going on, which is what we think that the whole point of this biological process is, to gain that survival advantage. You need to program through several generations. But does this happen in humans? Because it's all very well to talk about acacia rats, and it's all very well to have an experiment in a laboratory. But, you know, we don't want to go away chasing effects that, you know, maybe they're an experimental artefact. Maybe we did something wrong. Maybe it's not something that's actually relevant to human populations. And I want to work as a scientist on big questions that do affect human populations. But that's going to be very, very difficult to show. Because remember (laughs) remember the problems we had finding a human experiment that only spanned one generation? And now we want to find a human experiment where we can see over two generations, that's going to be really, really difficult. Maybe this place holds the key. This is Lapland. That's the northeast corner of Sweden. And it's there that an opportunity was spotted that could maybe hold the key to discovering whether or not this happens in humans. It's a place called Överkellix. Now, uvacalix is important for several reasons. There's three things that make this the ideal place to look at whether transgenerational effects might genuinely happen in a human population. The first is that uvacalix has very little migration in a ride. If you're born in uvacalix, it's very likely that you grow up there. It's very likely that you marry someone else from uvacalix, and you have your own kids, and they also live there. The second thing that's important when we're thinking about how we might prove that this happens in human generations is that they're very dependent on their own farmland for their food supply. This is a video of overkillics from 1971, and you can see farming is a very, very big deal. And a lot of the food that's eaten there is also grown there. And when the harvest isn't good, the food supply isn't good. And that's also really important. And the third thing third thing that makes overkillics special is that they love keeping records. And you can go back to 1890 in Overkillix, and you can find out exactly what the harvest was like every season, and you can find out what the food prices were like. And that means that all the way back for over 100 years, you can go back and you can find out what people were eating, and then you can find out when the babies were born and who was pregnant during what times and whose grandparents were pregnant at what times. And because this population, the records are so good, and the natural experiment is set up just right, you can find out what people's grandparents ate when their parents were in the womb, and you can also match that up with the adult health status today. It's remarkable. And you find that, actually, these transgenerational programming effects they do happen in human populations. And that when the grandparents were short of food, when the food prices were sky high and the harvest was really poor in ovacalics, the children born from those grandparents in the next generation, they have higher than average rates of these really important human metabolic diseases. And so we're looking at something real. We're looking at something that we can actually see and we can trace through in human populations. And since this original overkill its data, there have been other human populations that have shown the same effect. And so we have to go back to this idea of there must be a way that this happens. And we've been picking and pulling and turning at this this idea, and it turns out that actually some of the wiring diagram doesn't change, and you can can transmit some of the dimmer switch settings from generation to generation. And that's really exciting, and that's important, and that, that brings in the idea of fathers much more, but it doesn't it doesn't quite get to the bottom of this. It isn't the whole story. There's something else, there's something that we were missing, some mechanism that we hadn't hit on at all. And so I was looking at this, and I was thinking, well, this mum, take this mum in the middle, who's the mother of this new baby. She's programmed. She's programmed all over. Her, her kidneys look different, her liver is less efficient, her heart, her blood vessels, her thymus, her, even her immune system, is not the same as an adult who wasn't developmentally programmed themselves. What if, what if her reproductive system, what if her womb environment was also programmed? What if it was showing the effects? And because that womb environment, that's where this next-generation baby is forming, what if maybe it's the key? What if you don't have to have something transmitted straight from grandma all the way through to baby? What if instead you could regenerate that with each generation based on what the womb environment was like? And you can test that. We can look at that womb environment, and that's exactly what we did. What we did was we took the ovaries from these programmed mums and we compared them to mums that hadn't been programmed. So this is a slice through one of those ovaries. And what we're pointing to here is one single cell. That cell is going to become the next baby. It's still an egg at the minute. It's not even a mature egg. It's certainly not a fertilized egg. But it is an egg, and it is going to be the substance of that second baby. And it's inside this ovary. And when you look at this ovary, if this mum is developmentally programmed, it's not quite the same. It looks like the ovary of a much older mother. It's got more DNA damage. It's got higher levels of free radicals when you look at the cells. It's got different proteins, and it's doing different things. And that's where this egg that's going to be the next baby, that's where it's growing. And so it may be that you don't have to transmit anything directly from grandma at all. It may be that you can reprogram the effects through mum's reproductive system. And when we look at the fallopian tubes, which is where the early embryo divides, we see the same things. We see that same pattern of more DNA damage, more free radicals, and so on. And when we look on through at the womb, where the baby will actually do its development and it's growing, we can see the same effects. And so this is a new way of thinking about how generations might program further generations and how it might matter way more than you think what has happened in a generation or maybe even two generations before your own birth. And that's important for all of us when we think about how health matters and how previous generations can have a significant influence on our own health. There's a lot we still don't know. There's a huge amount of work that we still need to do on this story. For example, the role of the father has been very, very much underexplored, but we're beginning to understand now, and some really interesting results are coming out from labs all over the world, that show that sperm can set dimmer switches in the same way, and that they might be really effective in turning out in how the baby turns out and what its health risks are. It's much less easy to study than in mothers, which is why most of the attention so far in the field has focused on the mum. But the story of how the sperm can be programmed is one that's going to be really exciting in the next few years. We also don't know whether the effects are the same on boys and in girl babies inside the womb. And there are a lot of things that that seem to hint that girl babies and boy babies might not be affected in the same way. Their placentas react differently to stress, and we're beginning to understand much, much more about how that happens. But of course, the really important thing here, the thing that, that everyone thinks when they hear this story, is what can you do about it? What are the things that are going... If you can spot which baby's at risk, what can you do? What's the point of it if you can't do anything about it? And what we're doing at the minute is we're trialing all kinds of things that show a lot of promise for improving this. So we're looking at maternal exercise during pregnancy. We're looking at specific antioxidant supplements that might help to undo these adverse effects. We're looking at repurposing common drugs that are used during pregnancy in order to try to protect the baby from these developmental programming effects in the womb. And also what you can do after birth, because if you know who's at risk, then that's a really powerful way of ensuring that those diseases don't actually come to happen. And I want to leave you with one final thought, which is that none of this is deterministic. Saying that someone's at risk of a disease is very, very different from saying that they will get a disease. And being able to point out who's at risk is an incredibly powerful piece of knowledge that determines what you can do about that risk. Now, there are all kinds of things that play into everyone's risk of any disease. There's your genetics, you know, your hard wiring is deeply important. This life in the womb idea, this is important as well, but the most important thing is actually what you do in your own life. Um, All that developmental programming does is get you to a start line with a risk. And we all know that the athlete who lines up in the start line, best rested and best hydrated, isn't necessarily going to win. And we all know that the kid who turns up to sports day and mismatched trainers, they might still be the champion. And none of this means that your health will go one way or another during your life. But it's a very, very powerful piece of knowledge to know what your risks of getting certain problems are going to be. And that's what leads us in to this idea that you could do something important to help the health of future generations. So there's a lot of work still to do and a lot of things we don't know, but I hope that I might have convinced you that your granny's bump is probably more important for your own health than you might have imagined. Thank you. <laughs> I think we've, we've got some microphones. Um, there's, a, there's a hand up here um, and one down here as well to start with.
0: Thank you very much indeed. Very interesting. Um, I just wondered what... You've talked about diet uh, to a Mm -hmm. a large extent, but um, presumably in the uh, Canadian example, diet was, well, only one factor, if it was one factor at all. Mm. And I wonder whether there may not be sort of common mechanisms like sort of um, hormonal responses to stress. Yeah. And um, and and that might lead on to even (laughs) new areas such as the... The idea that you know the centre which someone is predisposed to be, you know, mm-hmm. anxious or whatever might yeah. be important. And the, other, the 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 second point is: um, Have you considered the stage at which this takes place? I mean, clearly, it's the early stages of organogenesis. But yeah. then, you know, you know, perhaps if you're interested in the brain, you're interested in the last third third mm-hmm. of pregnancy and beginning of, of life.
1: Yeah. So. Those are two really important questions, and the reason that we focus so much on diet is because it's very, very easy to change in the laboratory, and it's purely for practical reasons that diet becomes a really useful model. But you're absolutely right that you can program developmental effects purely through psychological stress, and you can see that in the Project Ice Storm experiment particularly, that there were mothers who'd experienced severe psychological stress, but hadn't actually experienced any physical hardship themselves. Their diet hadn't changed, and and they'd purely undergone um, some kind of loss of their home, for example. Um, And you can see it, there have been other human population experiments where they studied bereavement during pregnancy and so on as a a pure psychological stress. And absolutely, you can see developmental programming effects from those, um, and you're quite right that Anxiety in the offspring is one of the most commonly studied things. Um, And you can link that back to placental cortisol production and so on. Um, And we're we're getting to understand more and more of those. They're much, much harder to recreate in a lab situation, which is why they've been understudied up until now. But they are very important effects that, that we're just really beginning to tease out of the data overall. And your second question... Sorry, I've forgotten (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. What what stage of pregnancy does it happen at? Um, And actually, you can program subtly different effects depending on when you bring the stress on and off. So in some experiments, the stress begins pre-pregnancy, and you only continue it for the very, very first part, the sort of early embryo stage that I showed dividing in the dish in the video. And what that does is that sets certain aspects of metabolism and so on. But when you're looking at other more subtle effects, you can certainly program those later on. And depending on what stage of the baby's development you intervene at, you can actually protect from some effects and exacerbate other effects, depending on what the baby's doing inside the womb at any particular stage. So for example, if you're programming insulin production, then that's mainly done at an early stage of pregnancy as the pancreas lays down its insulin-producing cells, whereas if you go on to a later stage of pregnancy, then you get much more subtle effects on response to stress and brain development and so on. And so, yes, it is, it is becoming apparent that it's very, very important what happens. Of course, in human populations, you rarely get a specific window of stress. That's, that's hard to find, and it's more often the case that something that's affecting a mother, for example, she lives in the top of the Himalayas, is going to be the case for all of her pregnancy. And so people have tended to focus less on that because it less well replicates real-life situations. And we like to focus on things that happen as people actually live their lives, rather than um, as as we can change things in a laboratory. I think we had a question over here as well. Hello. Hi, you mentioned very briefly about you don't yet know the differences of male babies and female Mm -hmm. babies to these stresses. Yes. Okay. I was wondering, do you think that that could possibly in the future account for the higher prevalence of things like dyspraxia, dyslexia, that are male, Mm but the prevalence is mainly male, you know? Could this possibly be a seed for that? I think it it is a definite possibility that they may be linked. And so we know a lot about how male and female babies do differently. We know that if a baby's born small and premature, it's more likely to do well if it's a girl than if it's a boy baby. And that's actually something that neonatologists have known for a long time, that if they're presented with a tiny baby who, who is on the limits of life, really, it's more likely to do well overall if it's a girl baby than if it's a boy baby. And so this idea that things are different in the womb for girls and for boys has been around for a long time. And we know that that their support organs are actually churning out quite different proteins and different genes to support their development. And if you go even further back to evolutionary theory, which may not actually happen in human populations, but if you go back to that evolutionary theory, there's this idea that when times are really tough and you might not be able to replace your population in each generation because you're reproducing less than you normally do, that in some animals, the sex ratio skews towards females, and that's because you need more females per head of the next population to reproduce them. Of course, what the male brings in is genetic diversity, but you can lose that for a short period of time in order to replenish your population. And it may be that there's something in that that will lead us to this idea of female babies being preferentially protected... from the effects of developmental programming, and why we see more subtle problems... happening at much earlier stages in male babies than in females. We're still working on it. I haven't got a definite answer, but yeah. Um, We've got a question back, back here. Yeah, either way, yeah. Hi, thank you. Um, Do you know how many generations it takes to program out the differences? Yeah, so you you see them less strongly in each generation. We know in animal models that it takes four to five generations to get rid of them. We don't don't know in humans. Um, That kind of experiment still eludes us. We have no idea on a human population because you'd be looking at several hundred years worth of data and... As far as I know, simply nobody has that. But certainly, you see strong effects in the first generation, definite effects in the second generation, third generation, fourth generation. By the time you come to a fourth generation, you're really seeing very, very subtle effects. Some labs have reported that there may be something in a fifth generation, but some people don't see anything in fourth and fifth generations. It depends exactly what you're looking for, but it's certainly getting less and less with each subsequent generation that you go down. And that makes sense, because the further you are away from the initial problem, the less less likely it is that it's still affecting you all that time later. But certainly, there have been labs that have reported it clearly in a fourth generation. But for humans, which is a really interesting question, I'm afraid we we just don't know at the present time.
2: So, question right here at the back? Um, I've got two children. Um, Mm -hmm. The first one is age five, the second one is age one and a half. And I remember reading Boy by Roald Dahl, his autobiography, and um, he said his father would take his mother out for a walk every single day um, to show her beautiful nature thinking um, that it would transmit to the baby so again the idea of um, yeah the guy before mm-hmm. um, and it had to be from six months I think it was a specific date that he thought that it could be transmitted so not before exactly at six months mm-hmm. or seven months I can't remember the second thing is with my first pregnancy I was completely happy 100% every single day no stress whatsoever um, but then after the first baby, I lost two at uh, three months. And then w- with my second child now, um, I couldn't really be happy because I kept wondering you know, if she'd be born. So um, I wonder now um, with their health that if it would be affected. The other thing as well is with the first child, um, even the first year of them being born, there's usually no stress. But with the second child, they hear you shouting, being more stressed because of the first child. The, the dynamics in the house change. In yeah. fact, my second baby heard my angry voice in the womb, whereas my first child didn't hear my angry voice in the womb or for two years after. <laughs> the Difference in how I've been. I wonder what the difference will be in their health. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, first of all, the, the Roald Dahl story is really interesting because there are as many myths and as much folklore around this as you could possibly imagine. It's a really emotive subject that, that captures everybody. And I know that there'll be a lot of people in the audience sitting, thinking about their own children's health, exactly as you have, and thinking about, oh, did, did my mum smoke with my grandma? <laughs> did she work physically? Um, and it is, is something that, that people relate to in a very personal level i don't think it necessarily translates on a personal level directly i mean what we're looking at are really subtle changes in risk rather than an idea that says your child will be like this or your child will be like that Um, and as i said risk of something is in no way the same as having something Um, and so on an individual level it doesn't translate directly to to any one case or any any individual person. But I think that that overall, the idea that it captures so many people's imagination and that it has persisted in the myths and the folklore of pregnancy for so long that what the mother does, you know, you hear all kinds of things like listening to Mozart and, you know, how much ginger juice you have to drink in, in shots every day when you're pregnant now and that there is such a lot of interest and so much widespread concern and so on that that really being able to delve into what it is and it isn't in scientific terms, I think, is probably the most helpful thing of all. That we know that the subtle things are not transmitted to the baby. The subtle things are buffered by mum. And the idea that baby maybe can hear an angry tone or a soft tone... that baby's in a big swimming pool way away from the noise waves that you're actually producing. And what I don't want is for people to go away from this, with this idea that everything about the environment is transmitted directly to the baby. The baby's not seeing what you're seeing. It's seeing big effects, like if you're existing in half the oxygen level that you should be on top of a mountain, or if you're in a famine condition. I think your kids are going to be fine. Um, I think we might just have time for one more quick question. There's one up here.
2: Thank you. Oh, it is on. on. Uh, Thank you very much. Um, You you mentioned mental health. Mm -hmm. And while I can conceptualise or see the idea of laying down fat being useful, Mm -hmm. I'd struggle to see how something like mental health and schizophrenia could be useful to future generation. I wonder if you could... Mm. a bit more.
1: So these, these things don't always come out in humans as you'd expect to from the animal models. And it's possible that if you're trying to program a survival advantage, then you program alertness, and you program different ways of reacting to situations. And that if you're trying to program survival, if we take our acacia rat, if you're more sensitive to your surroundings, more sensitive to predators, more sensitive to to what's happening to you, then maybe in a difficult marginal survival situation, then you might succeed better. Whereas if times are different, then what you actually want is to have a very relaxed, stay at home, <laughs> don't move too much, don't use up your energy kind of mental state. And how those things translate into human populations isn't a one-to-one relationship. But there's certainly an idea that by changing the brain state of a smaller mammal, then you might give it a survival advantage or disadvantage to cope better with certain, certain, certain things that are stressing it in the environment at any time. I think that's, that's the way we tend to understand it, but it's a great question, and, and we don't fully understand how these things come out in human populations. Um, I think we might be out of time. Have we got time for just one more question? Oh, oh go on, we've, we've got one down here. Have we got a microphone, or have we, are we done with our microphones? I can speak quite loud. Okay. <laughs> so my, my, uh... We have to stop. I'm so sorry. We, we actually don't have time. I'll talk to you about it in a second. <laughs>